Welcome to this week's edition of the Football and More podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Hammerman. Listen to us everywhere, on iTunes, on SoundCloud. There's a lot of things that are happening right now that are really, really good. So I'm very excited to be here. The fan of a Super Bowl-winning team. And I'm here with one of my favorite old-time guests. The one, the only, Bleeding Green Nation's own Ben Natan. Ben, how are you? I'm doing well. Today was a snow day, so it was, it was pretty lazy for me. Got to nap for a while, so I'm I'm having a good day. I think napping is always good. Napping, oh yeah, for sure. Napping is the best. Now we're gonna start. We're not gonna talk about the Super Bowl too much. It's been covered to death. But you actually didn't watch all the Super Bowl. So tell me what happened when you first saw what was happening at the Super Bowl when you like first were exposed to it, and then how that changed over the course of the game. Well, it's really funny because. So I, I couldn't – I didn't have any exposure to the Super Bowl um, for the first half because I was in rehearsal. And then our rehearsal let up early because the director wanted to watch Lady Gaga. So I I was able to leave. And when I left, I turned on my phone and two people that I'm friends with or one of, one of my really close friends is a Falcons fan. And, like, there was just, like, a chain of text messages about the first half. And he was so hype about it. Um, and then, uh, also like the group chat, some group chats with, with different writers and one of them's a Falcons fan. And, and like, that was like a huge thing. And it was just kind of cool. And I was like, Oh great. Cause I'm not a big, big fan of the Patriots. Um, and when I got back to my apartment, uh, my friend came over to my apartment with me and we were just like watching the game and just like everything unraveled so quickly. And you could, you, you could kind of tell like halfway through the fourth quarter when the, the Patriots kind of grabbed that momentum back. You're like, they're going to win this game, aren't they? And, and, uh, once it went to overtime, it was kind of obvious like how, how the game was going to end because I never count out Tom Brady, I guess. Never and, count out touchdown Tom. Exactly. You can never ever do it. And John Boyce actually did. He did count out touchdown Tom. And that was a mistake, John Boyce. Yeah. Love John Boyce, but that was a mistake. I was watching with a crowd of non-Patriots fans. And I was a very good sport for the first half. I mean, I actually like the Falcons. They're one of my favorite NFC teams. I tweeted out a picture of myself. Wearing my first ever football jersey, which was a Mike Vick jersey that I got when I was really little because Mike Vick was one of my favorite players of all time. And, I mean, I, I've always had an affinity for Atlanta. So I was actually pretty happy uh, for the individual players. Like, I had a first-round grade of Devontae Freeman when he came out for the draft. So that was like, yes, Devontae, keep killing it. He's fantastic. And watching guys like um, Taylor Gabriel step up, Grady Jarrett, uh, 
Rashid Hageman even making some stuffs. I mean, it was a pretty good first half for the Falcons. The Patriots just weren't executing well, but they were moving the ball. They just kept making some inopportune turnovers. I tweeted when it was 28-3 to that if the Patriots don't score in the next series, I'd call the game over. And then they didn't not score in any other series other than the one right before overtime. It was crazy. And, you know, I mean, Tom Brady played pretty well. He also got bailed out by his skill position players big time, who quietly, in the first half, the skill position players were getting open. Brady wasn't finding them. Chris Hogan he missed. He missed Julian Edelman a couple of times. Malcolm Mitchell a couple of times. So I actually think that the skill position players were playing consistently. It was just up to Brady executing to really bring them to the next level. And watching James White have the game of his life and set the record in reception, someone who has worked really hard and is keeps getting better and better every day. He's getting more and more recognition every single day. Um, that was really thrilling to see. Seeing Malcolm Mitchell, the rookie, make big play after big play, seeing Chris Hogan, Julian Edelman, Danny Amendola step up. It was great. And then on defense, I mean, Dante Hightower and Trey Flowers, and to a lesser extent, Alan Branch, they all played fantastic games. Um, and even Eric Rowe. I mean, he got burned on that one play, but he played pretty well. He's a good, he's a good player. He's going to end up being a good player. He's going to take Logan Ryan's job because yeah. I don't think they're going to re-sign Logan Ryan. Um, I don't have that many Super Bowl takes that haven't already been said. I think probably the biggest thing is that if there was any doubt that Tom Brady is the best, isn't the best quarterback of all time, that's pretty much been erased. Um, he's the best, and you just got to deal with it if you don't think that because now he's won five Super Bowls and probably should have won at least one or two more. So it's just one of those things that that's history. And I definitely recommend that if you haven't watched the sound effects of the game, you should because the sound effects is hysterical because Julian Edelman – didn't know that the game was over, and he was trying to keep all the players off the field when they were reviewing the touchdown in overtime. <laughs> and Bill Belichick just like gives him a big hug, and he's like, "Stop, Julian, <laughs> it's over." And it was it was just one of those really funny moments that you can only get in sound effects. We're gonna move from the Super Bowl, though. Um, we're gonna talk about one of my favorite players in the Patriots this year, uh, someone who actually made a very underrated play in the Super Bowl. Um, there is a point, and you actually didn't see this, but on the last drive before the half, Tom Brady threw a pass that got tipped in the air, and it was going to be intercepted, but one black unicorn, one Martellus Bennett, caught the ball and then ran downfield for like 20 yards. If he doesn't make that catch, they don't get a field goal to end the half, and the Falcons get yet another turnover. That's one of the most underrated plays in the game. And Martellus Bennett is, in my opinion, one of the most underrated players in the Patriots this year. Uh, they really did not miss a beat when Gronk was out, and that's because Bennett was so good as a run blocker and so good as a receiver. And then at the same time, a lot of the reason why teams sour from Bennett is because he was perceived to be a little bit uh, different off the field for various reasons. And I think it says a lot about the Patriots locker room that he really was able to fit in seamlessly, and he really seems to be happy here. I don't know if they're going to resign him, but I love Martellus Bennett. I think he's my favorite Patriots player that I've seen in a long time. Yeah, and if I recall correctly, he also made the play in overtime. He drew that pass interference like, by the end zone, too. Yes, he did. So, yeah, he was he was really excellent for them, and I, and I do really love him off the field. I think that just some of the stuff he's written, uh, he had a 
he had a cool article for Players Tribune a couple couple months ago. I think it was over the summer, and then just you know following him on Twitter and everything that like that. It's it's good to see athletes with unique perspectives on the world and also just a willingness to put it out there. And, and we, we've seen that consistently with Bennett, that he's more than comfortable to talk about his different views on things. And I think that's really important for a guy with his platform. The Patriots have three players on their team who have written children's books, which is kind of crazy, right? I mean, I can't think of too many other teams where you would see that or many other players even. Uh, but Martellus Bennett, Malcolm Mitchell, and Julian Edelman have all written children's books. And Bennett's... Really, I mean, his big thing is animation. He has his own company called the Imagination Agency. He's really into animation. He's really into um, helping young children with books for, like, early education and whatnot. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't understand how any team could have found him a distraction. Because he seems like such, like, he works his butt off, and he's always worked his butt off. Uh, You hear that from all of his teams. There are just some locker rooms and coaches that didn't want a guy who had so many different thoughts outside of football in their locker room. That's my opinion. I think, yeah, and I think it really just comes down to it comes down to a societal issue, honestly. That there's this there's this need to enforce binaries upon people and uh, upon football players. That if you're a football player, you are going to be a football player and just a football player. And for a guy like Bennett, who is so uh, so, inter- I mean, he's so interested in different things across the board, and so willing to kind of explore those things on top of football. Um, that doesn't really, I, that, I could see that not vibing well with a lot of coaching staffs and a lot of locker rooms, even because pe- some people are so ingrained with this idea that you know football is life and everything like that, and these guys need to stick to stick to sports, you know, um, and and. Bennett going against that is is something that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And we're seeing that now with the whole White House thing. And um, if I may, um, I think that that the, the whole White House issue for Martellus Bennett is especially interesting. And you want to look at it as, you know, oh, well, maybe it's not just about the fact that Donald Trump doesn't sit well with, you know, Bennett's personal politics. When you look at Martellus Bennett as a person who's so adamant about advocating people kind of breaking out of these binaries as children, I mean, he went on a whole tweet storm the other day about how there's expectations for black kids about, you know, what they're supposed to be doing in high school or what they're supposed to be doing as children in terms of, oh, well, these kids have to be athletes. Um, and he's saying, you know, you don't have to be an athlete. You can be, a com- you know, you could be into math. You can be a computer nerd. You can be a musician. You can be an actor, an artist. Um, and he really wants to break those those binaries, those those kind of perceptions of that community. And for an administration to come in and immediately say, we're going to take away the National Endowment for the Arts. And when you take away the National Endowment for the Arts, you destroy the ability for disenfranchised people or for people who have less money to seek out those kind of opportunities. Because, you know, it's never the sports program that gets taken away from a public school. But the after-school music program, you know, the, the theater program, opportunities that these public school kids won't necessarily have because their schools aren't getting the funding to support an arts program. And because of that, a lot of people with less money are just going to have to turn to athletics to provide that after-school structure, that that structure that kids need at a young age. And it kind of keeps those things 
in the hands of wealthier and, and more able people. You know, when I was growing up, I was blessed to have, you know, I, I come from means and that really gave me the opportunity to do a lot of theater, you know, in my community and community theater and, and go to arts camps and everything like that. And not everyone has that opportunity. And I was able to fall in love with theater from a very, very young age um, because that, that structure was kind of given to me rather than, uh, you know, even though I didn't have that really at my public school. Now, people, not everyone can afford that. And, and with taking away the National Endowment for the Arts, which is something that this administration is so comfortable doing and, and the complete divestment of the public education system that's eventually going to be coming, you're reinforcing these, oh, well, you know, you're poor, so you're going to have to just play sports if you want that opportunity. And, and that's something that obviously doesn't sit well with, with Bennett on top of, you know, a handful of other things. Um, and, and for him to protest going to the, the White House, it makes absolute sense because there's no, there's no philosophical reason for him to go to the White House um, when this administration is so countering to what he wants, to what he sees in the world. And there is so many ways to follow up on that. Uh, I do want to quickly, before I address a couple of the points that you brought up, um, just give one anecdote of maybe a counterexample of a way that a team was positively fostering Bennett's creativity. I know that he was not happy in Dallas. That was the first team he was on. When he got to the New York Giants, though, uh, and he talked about this, I believe, in an article that was written by Mina Kimes in ESPN, the Giants would, in his locker, put schedules of art exhibits and other artistic things that were happening so that he would know what was going on and he would be able to make time to go see them. And that is a good example, good for you, New York Giants, of enriching your players off the field because at the end of the day, these guys are going to play for like four to 11 years and then be totally beaten up and not know what to do afterwards unless you get a job in media. So I think it's great that the Giants and certain other teams and the Patriots do this as well, actually. A lot of the teams with good owners do this well. That's really, really surprising to me. Not. Um, a lot of the teams with stable at the top, stability at the top. Um, it's good that these teams are enriching their players, and I think that that's something that's really important. And I'm hoping that more teams keep that in mind moving forward, especially as I think that we really have seen a democratization of the arts uh, in recent years, I think that more players want to get involved. I think more players want to be openly involved in these types of things, and, and hopefully teams can help them do that. Uh, but I also want to address you because you, as you said, you really grew up as an actor. You love acting. I really didn't have a lot of experience in the arts. My brother was the bigger actor in my family. I stuck to certain other endeavors instead. But what would you say that acting taught you or helped you with that you don't think that you can get by playing a sport? I think that the most important thing that acting taught me that I didn't really get from sports is that feeling things is okay <laughs> and feeling things is necessary and it's constructive. And with sports, it's, it's, there's kind of this macho thing that goes along. You know, I played, I played a little bit of football and I played some soccer when I was, when I was in middle school and high school. And I mean, there's this kind of pushback of, you know, individuality and kind of thinking about a, the team as a unit. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. There's, there's some really good things to learn with working on teamwork and some stuff that I've actually really applied to the theater and working with actors. Um, but in theater, 
there's such an emphasis on allowing people to express their individuality and not be afraid of what their heart is telling them to feel and not telling, you know, not really forcing anyone to experience something in a homogenous way. Um, and some, and that's a big, a big thing for me in college and in my college education in terms of growing as an actor is that every actor's experience is unique in reading a script or in singing a song because every person's experience is unique in experiencing any situation in life because it's not about some kind of uniform view of how something should be experienced. It's about how the individual experiences that. And you act for the individual, you act as an individual, not as some preconceived notion about what that should, what that type of thing should be. Um, and then on top of that, probably, I think maybe the most important thing I've learned in theater is just acceptance. You know, theater is among the most diverse types of experiences that I've had over the course of my life. Um, you know, I've been doing all kinds of theater between high school theater, you know, summer theater, community theater, and now theater in college, um, for 16 years about, and just the people I've met who've come from different walks of life, who'd have different points of view, who are different races, religion, gender, sexuality, everything. Um, and being able to work in close proximity with those people and really learn from them. And in theater, you really, you really love your, your actors that you work with. I mean, working in a theater is a really emotional experience and you grow really close with your close with the cast that you work with and in growing really close with the cast that you work with, you learn to kind of, I mean, you struggle with them. And obviously it's not necessarily about, you know, me having a certain amount of privilege as a, as a white guy, but um, not having to deal with a lot of this, the same stigmas that they do, but you know, you learn empathy. Um, and that's so, so important in today's world that we need to start teaching empathy to people because so many people, so many folks who, who are still willing to support the, the bigotry that goes on across the world, it often, it doesn't necessarily always come from a place of outright hatred themselves, but it's just a complete lack of empathy. And you see that with stuff with, um, I think the Affordable Care Act is a good example of that. You know, imperfect, an imperfect piece of legislation, yes. But just this idea that everybody deserves health care. Quite simple idea. And the pushback against that is mind-boggling to me. Just to think that there are people out there who think a poor person doesn't deserve to get health care because they quote unquote don't think they worked hard enough or, or education or, or the right to the right to marriage or something like that. Just to think that people can't step in other, other people's shoes for a moment and say, you know what, if I was in that position, I, I would feel horrible and, and I need to have compassion. I need to have empathy for this person because we don't know, we don't know what other people have been through. And I think another thing is this, this whole refugee thing. And for, for so many people to so comfortably accept this alternate reality where refugees pose a massive threat to the United States is horrifying. I mean, th these people are caught in a war zone and, and a war zone that they did not choose to, <laughs> they did not choose to be there. And a lot of the, these refugees are coming over because of 
situations that the United States set up, you know, a lot of a lot of the destabilization that's happening in the Middle East is because of stuff stuff that the United States has done. And for us as a country to not want to collectively take responsibility for the people that we've hurt, the innocent people that have gotten hurt is is reprehensible. So theater has taught me and has taught so many other people um, compassion. And I think that's why it's such a powerful force is because it really teaches you compassion and loving, loving one another, regardless of how different they are from you. Yeah. Football is not exactly an empathetic sport. No. <laughs> football is not about getting to know other people. And I definitely agree with you that sometimes when you look at football culture in America, and I think actually it's a little bit less so in the NFL, because in the NFL, you do kind of see the cream of the crop. And a lot of the cream of the crop are people who come from very disparate backgrounds, which I think is really great. And it's good that there's a lot of uh, heterogeneous people in the NFL. At the same time, I also think that when you look at a case like Michael Sam at Missouri, where he came out his senior year, and before then there were a lot of players on his team who hadn't even ever met a gay person before, and... Knowing him and seeing him function as a football player, as as innocuous as it seems, that was what changed a lot of their minds about gay people. Because they hadn't actually met one before, so they didn't know that one could subvert whatever stereotypes they had about a gay person. And I think that's the kind of thing where, with refugees, I read a really, really good story about the this refugee family in Nebraska yeah. and how... Um, people who supported the refugee ban met these Syrian refugees and their minds were changed because they were like, these are great people. They care about the same things that we care about. Because at the end of the day, like more people have been killed by New England Patriots tight ends than by refugees from the countries where Trump banned the refugees from. And that's a true statistic. Like, I mean, I mean, that's what it comes down to. That's literally what it comes down to. This is fear-mongering, this is a scare tactic, and this is something that is, in my mind and the minds of many others, un-American. And I think that we just saw that the ban has not been upheld by any legal standard, because it is illegal, and we'll see what happens as we go down that road as well. But, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think that living in a culture where we care more about other people, put ourselves in other people's shoes... Uh, is very important, and it's just something that you need to keep an eye on and think about when you're in any situation. Um, yeah, I, I, I pretty much that that was the spiel, I think, and you had a similar spiel that you were telling about uh, our thoughts about this entire issue. But circling back a little bit to the Patriots in the White House. Um, so as Ben said, there are five at this point who are confirmed not going. Those five are Narcellus Bennett, LeGarrette Blunt, Chris Long, um, Devin McCourty, and Dante Hightower. And then James White, it sounds like, is also not going to go. He's still deciding, but it sounded like he wasn't going to go. So that's their right. I still think it would be very funny if they went to Obama's house, took a picture with him on the same day, but that's not going to happen. I've already put it to bed. That would be funny. That would be oh, really yeah, I'm, funny. I'm here for trolling um, the current president. But there's a lot of faux outrage out there 
about the situation. I don't think it's necessarily from Patriots fans. I think it's from people in general. People in general who are like, you have to respect the president. You have to go. And at the same time, I mean, this isn't a new thing. Like, James Harrison didn't go to the Oval Office when Barack Obama was there, whenever he won the Super Bowl. Because James Harrison... Didn't want to go. And, and neither did Tom Brady. Tom Brady, Tom Brady didn't either. I think Tom Matt, Brady Matt, had something. Matt Burke didn't go. Yeah, Matt Burke didn't go, and he expressly didn't go for political reasons. Yeah. So I, I think that it's totally fine if someone doesn't want to go. I mean, that's their right. But at the same time, what do you think about all the faux outrage and how not only does that create a lot of public outcry, but it ladders up to the actual politicians themselves? Um. I think it's, I think, I mean, it's ridiculous baseline, the, the outrage of them, because at the surface level of it, it's their right to choose whether or not they want to go. You know, there was no outcry when Matt Burke didn't want to go. There was no outcry when Tom Brady didn't want to go. There was no outcry when James Harrison didn't want to go. But all of a sudden you disrespect Donald Trump and, and, uh, it's, it's this shit show. And I think... I mean, I want to chalk it up to these people's feelings about, you know, Barack Obama versus their feelings about Donald Trump, where people were so much more comfortable disrespecting Barack Obama. I mean, Republicans were obviously so comfortable disrespecting Barack Obama. Um, and all of a sudden, now that people feel emboldened to do the same against uh, an absolutely embarrassing and reprehensible president that we currently have... Um, it makes them uncomfortable because because the shoe's kind of on the other foot, and and that's just kind of the surface level of it. But I mean, like like I was talking about earlier, there's no reason for these guys to want to go. Why? And and I think it was I think it was Devin McCourty who said, "I don't feel welcome. Like I won't feel welcome in the White House." Said it too today. Yeah, and he's absolutely. I mean, you just confirmed. Uh, you just confirmed a, a an attorney general who spent his life fighting against civil rights. I mean, he voted against the, the uh, he voted against the Voting Rights Act. He voted against the Violence Against Women Act. He voted against labeling crime against uh, crime against uh, LGBTQ crime as a hate crime. Um, he voted oh, he Oh, this is the best part. He was rejected from a court position in the 80s by a Republican Senate for being too racist. 1980s, so Reagan Republicans thought he was too racist to be in the court system. And the only reason he actually went after the KKK, you know, that's a, that's always the retort. You know, Jeff Sessions isn't racist. He went after the KKK. He expressively said the only reason he went after the KKK is because he found out they were trafficking drugs. That's the only reason. And you saw what his first act was. They've already they've already pushed through basically a war on drugs thing, and they they're basically going to have a, a freaking Blue Lives Matter executive order. And it's it's so it's so blatantly racialized. This whole thing, this whole administration, is so blatantly in the interest of white nationalism that not of course these players aren't going to feel comfortable going to the White House. They have no reason to feel comfortable going to the White House. You, the chief of staff, <laughs> not the chief of staff, the chief advisor is a, is, is a proud white supremacist. And, you know, between Steve Bannon and Steve Miller, you have two guys who have very lo- long storied histories of, 
of white supremacy, you know, both at the college level and also work, I mean, working at Breitbart and everything like that. There's, I, it's just absolutely ridiculous to think that these guys should feel comfortable or, or that these guys are wrong and feeling uncomfortable going to the white house. Um, and it, it completely misunderstands their position. It completely misunderstands the president's position and his staff's position. It's ridiculous. And again, if, we, it's the player's prerogative. And a lot of these players Absolutely. have now been to multiple Super Bowls. James White hasn't, but some of these other guys have. They got to meet President Obama, and maybe they just don't want to go again because they don't feel comfortable with Trump. And that's totally, I mean, that's their decision. And I think for the most part, reaction has been pretty much in that vein, but there have been some of the extreme people who've, who've just been like, Martellus Bennett should be cut immediately. And it's like, well, he's a, free a, you don't even watch football, and B, he's a free agent. So uh, I love that. That's my that's my favorite thing. Like, just like the people who don't actually watch football and like their take on the whole thing. It's like, dude, shut, like, shut up. Like, we know why you're here type of thing. Um, and it, it, is, it is a lot of like faux outrage. I mean, I, I'm sure we're going to get uh, a thing from, from uh, What's-Her-Face. Tanya Lauren or something like that, like about like, oh, you know, he's disrespecting the president, yada, 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 something about Obama being evil, ISIS, 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 like, shut the fuck up. You don't actually care about these issues. You're just trying to stoke more outrage. And, and you, it just, like we were talking about before, it's a a complete lack of empathy and there's no effort to even understand where they're coming from. Yeah. It's just one of those things where, um, hopefully people are learning that maybe we need to listen to the voices of those who've historically been disenfranchised and that people really do seem to be coming together as a counter movement to uh, fight what they see as being wrong and to stand up for other people who might not necessarily have the wherewithal by themselves to make the voice they need to stand up for themselves effectively. So, I want to talk a little bit about the protest movement that's been going on in this country. Um, there have been a lot of protests since the election. I think it's been really great. I've gone to a couple. I know you've gone to a couple as well. You've gone to more than me. I'm always the kind of person who, I'm a little skeptical about the effectiveness of protests, just because I, I'm the kind of person who I like getting things done. Like, I want to put my name on a petition, I want to donate money. I'm the kind of person who I like having something tangible to say, this is what I did to help this cause. At the same time, though, I think it's pretty hard to deny that these protests have been making a huge impact uh, for a lot of people. I mean, uh, you saw what happened at JFK uh, with the protests happening outside. That was the only way that some of these uh, people who were flying in from other countries were ended up to be freed. Um, You saw lawyers working pro bono trying to litigate these cases on the spot to try and help these people. And I think it's been kind of nice to see all the selflessness and people coming together and people standing up. And I'm intrigued to see how it continues. So since you're a little bit more of the protester than I am, you've been to more than me, why do you think protesting is important and what have you been able to get from your protesting experience? I think that it's multifaceted what protest really provides, especially now um, in this new, this new administration. And one, I think that this idea of protest as a form of catharsis is an important and underrated one because 
listen, people, people are, are reading the news every day. People are reading the news every hour. And it's depressing. Between the cabinet nominations, between coming executive orders, just be, and, and just the lies that are coming out of the president, the, the press secretary, you know, Kellyanne Conway, whatever. You know, being battered with that on a regular basis is exhausting. And it's depressing. Because you're like, these are the leaders of our country, and I'm furious about this. So to be able to go out there, you know, with a group of people and really express how you feel. I mean, just just the ability to kind of shout how you feel into the universe. That in itself is, it, it helps. It helps just take the pressure off the mind. And more importantly, just to go out there with... You know, it depends on the protest. You're going out there with 100 other people, going out there with 1,000 other people. You know, in the case of the Women's March a couple of weeks ago, in the case of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, seeing, seeing Americans, you know, old, young women, men, gay, straight, you know, black, white, Muslim, Jewish, you know, regardless, everyone. You know, every every demographic was out there for the Women's March. And to see Americans kind of come together and say to one another, I'm, I'm here to support you. I don't care if, I don't care if you're an elite, I don't care if you're, you know, refugee, I don't care if you're Muslim, I don't care if you're Jewish or black, you know, if this government comes for you, I will be standing with you. And one thing that I think, Oh, sorry to cut you off. One thing that I think is also important to note is that this wasn't just in D.C. and New York. This was in Alabama. This was in Texas. This was in every state across the country. And yeah. what people don't realize is the state in this country that houses the most refugees is Georgia. And Georgia is, I mean, it's not necessarily what you would think when you would think about which state would have the most refugees. But this is something that crosses party lines. It crosses the Mason-Dixon line, it crosses every line you could think of. I mean, one thing that I know we've gotten conversations about this in the group chat, I think that most people are good people. And I think that people do have an inclination to be good and to try to help others. And I think that that's really what we're seeing. We're seeing the best of people right now because people are seeing that their friends are scared and their neighbors are scared. People they don't know are scared and they want to stand up and support them. And I think that overall across the country that's been really beautiful to see yeah and i think and and like i was saying to go out there and say like these people in some capacity are here for each other and just that in itself as a form of catharsis that helps you get through the day and you know we talk about resistance you know resistance has been like the hot button you know that's that's been a buzzword the past couple weeks you know resist 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 and nobody actually really knows what that means and I think part of the resistance, and this is going to sound corny as hell, part of the resistance is just keeping your head up some days. Because, I mean, if we're if we're talking about a theoretical fascist government, um, a point of fascism is to completely depress the population into just becoming drones. And that's a big thing where fascist regimes in, in over the course of history, the num- one of the first things they took away from the people is the arts. And then they take away entertainment because they don't want people feeling shit. They want people focusing on, you know, doing their job within a structure, fueling the machine. So keeping your head up and keeping a smile on your face and being able to live another day without just kind of giving in to how awful this all is, that in itself is a resistance. 
And that's a, that's a big thing that protests can provide. So that's, that, that's one thing. But another thing, and this is, this is very important, especially going forward, as more and more of these executive orders com- are coming out, not just executive orders, but just laws in general, things that are going to be coming through the House and through the Senate, is protest, and this is, this is, this is kind of a message for people out there who are saying, oh, you know, why, you know, protests should be respectful, blah, 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 you're blocking the streets, blah, 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 you're breaking shit. Listen, protests are transgressive in nature. That's the point. Because when, because power does not work for people. Power works for power unless power is afraid of people. So protests are supposed to make a statement saying, we have all of these people here who don't like what you're doing. And if you come for these people, there's going to be a reaction. And I think that's especially important in cities like New York and cities like Los Angeles, because in those two cities, those cities predominantly went blue. I think I, I think uh, Clinton's victory in New York over Trump was the second biggest victory in in like citywide history. It was like the it was like a three million or four million person lead in the state just because of New York City, um, which was a little bit less than Obama over McCain, but still pretty substantial. And it's a message saying like, look. You're gonna come for you're gonna come for Hispanic people. You're gonna come for Muslim people. You're gonna come for Black people. Like that's what you want to do. And you have a city full of people that hates you that you have most of your property in. And like, and it just comes down to protest is supposed to be transgressive because you need to scare power into working for you. And even and even on the Democratic side of things, I mean, a lot of these Democrats were being a little bit. Uh, what's the word? They're kind of rolling with that whole respectability uh, politics because thing. they're scared. Because they want to keep their seats. Well, it's because Democrats don't know how to get mad. That's something that Republicans are really good at. Republicans are excellent at getting mad. Democrats, Democratic politicians, not so much. But when you saw the protests come out and really galvanize the party and say, like, say to the senators, say to the the representatives, we want you to we want you to oppose everything this administration does, or we will primary you out. And you've seen that a lot of these senators are reacting by shooting down all these different cabinet nominations. And unfortunately, that's not really working just because of, of the lead that the Republicans have in, in the House and in the Senate. Um, but th- there's a growing – there's a growing – I, want, I don't like using the word resistance too much, but you see... People you, are you, standing up you, you and they're see, saying, we're not going to let you just walk all over us. Yeah, we're and I, government too. Yeah, and I think a big big part of that is is seeing how pissed off the country is and how scared the country is. And so I don't want to hear about, oh, you know, these people shouldn't be blocking up streets because people need to get to work or like, how dare you break a Starbucks window? It's like, you are missing the point. The fact that you are more angry about protesters than you are about what this administration is doing really shows where your priorities are at. Um, so protest is important. Protest serves a lot of purposes. It, it not only does it help people, it helps it helps build communities, and it helps and it helps really it kind of helps people connect. And just today, uh, there was a story about a bunch of rabbis got arrested outside of Trump Tower because they were protesting the Muslim ban. Now, in the media and, and historically, you don't really hear a lot of stories about about Jewish leadership sticking up for Muslim leadership or vice versa. And now, not, not to say that it doesn't happen over the course of history because it does, definitely does, but there is a narrative about how those two, those two groups of people are divided. And 
that's seeing that was beautiful. And, and I know on Sunday I'm going to, I'm going to a rally, um, where it's, it's hosted by a bunch of New York rabbis in support of, um, in support of refugees in support of, of Muslims within the United States, because building, you know, we can, we can all talk about intersectionality, but the fact that protests are actively driving to like build that intersectionality is going to be really important for Americans over the next four years. I mean, you said it pretty perfectly. I know that uh, I've talked to my dad, who's a rabbi, and he was supposed to go to that New York rally, but then they did something in Stanford instead, so he had to do that. Um, that was also very much around this. But I, I think the thing that bothers me the most, and I think that it's great domestically, we're protecting our own, but internationally, I mean, the damage is done. And I just still don't understand how people who would get so mad whenever anyone would ever even think about insulting the troops or anyone would ever say America isn't the greatest country in the world, that these people are totally fine with our president taking calls with Vladimir Putin that no one is listening to at like two in the morning, uh, walking around the White House with a bathrobe showing clear signs of dementia and just generally being unfit to leave this country. But, well, it, it shows that... <laughs> I mean, yeah. It shows... <laughs> The hypocrisy is obvious, and it, and it shows that these people who who've been spouting these these quote unquote patriotic narratives for the past year or for the past eight years are they're full of shit. They don't care about the troops. They care about fighting wars. You know, they don't care about Americans. They fight. They care about Americans making them money. Um, if they really cared about the troops, they wouldn't have voted for a guy who consistently disparaged POWs, made jokes about you know so, soldiers coming back from war with PTSD. And is actively froze the VA within the first couple of days of his presidency. I mean, that is not a guy who's, who has any care for, for United States soldiers. You know, he, he launched an operation despite the advisement of his intel, of the intelligence community that got uh, a Navy SEAL killed. You know, he also got 30 civilians killed. I mean, this guy has no care for, for Americans. Um, and a lot of the people who pretend to have care for Americans who continue support to support him are using patriotism for as a mask for their bigotry and their warmongering. And I mean, you just look at everyone who he's nominated to office. All these people are disgruntled people who have failed out of their former jobs for one reason or another, probably because they were racist, sexist, or misogynistic. I mean, Kenneth Starr is about to get a cabinet position probably too. Or a position of the administration. It, and Ken Starr is the guy who oversaw Baylor when there were a lot of sexual assaults. I mean, Art Bryles got fired, but Ken, and Ken Starr also got in trouble for it. But he, he luckily for him, he's able to get his footing back in the Trump administration. It, the one positive thing, though, about our president's idiocy is that he doesn't actually read. He watches TV. And seeing the pictures of all these people protesting and at these rallies pisses him off more than anything in the world. I mean, this is someone who got mad that his secretary of... Um, communication. Communication. Is that what Press it is? secretary. Press secretary. Yeah, yeah. whatever. Uh, that he was prepared as a woman on SNL. I mean, this guy has the thinnest skin ever. I just still... I don't get people who supported him. I don't get voting third party against him. It just... 
especially looking at it now. I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty, but we had pretty good vision before now. We should have seen this coming. Yeah. Um, I mean, 65 million people. Did see it coming. Did see it coming. <laughs> Part of it also, though, is I just really hope SNL just does everyone as a woman. We need, yeah. and we need Rosie to play Trump. I would, the people need Rosie O'Donnell to play Donald Trump in the skit. Rosie, I don't know if you listen to this podcast, but if you do, now's the time. You haven't been relevant in like 20 years. Now's your chance. You're like the most anonymous person ever now. No one really cares about you. This is your chance to, <laughs> this is your chance to make people actually care about you again. But it's, it, I mean, on that point, it is cool. And this is a little bit selfish, but it's, it's cool for me to see the, the power that the arts has, um, mm-hmm. on Hamilton, on, on affecting this administration and kind of disgruntling them. Pence. And yeah. And like the whole, like, you mean, you have the whole Hamilton thing with Pence where the crowd booed, booed the vice president and the, the cast issued, I mean, I think a very civil statement about, about representation. I mean, they didn't really attack him. The fact that Trump thought that a, a, a plea for, for civility was an attack says a lot about Donald Trump. Um, and then you just see like, um, the power, I mean, like even SNL, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a big SNL guy, but just, it's, it's funny at, at the very least, it's, it's funny to see how much it irks him, um, that, you know, SNL is working so hard to piss him off. Uh, and as an actor, and I think as, as an artist in general, it's going to be important to really use my ability and also encourage, you know, actors I work with, um, to do something similar, not necessarily, uh, to, to, you know, piss off the president, but use theater, use, use your medium as an artist to make political statements and they don't necessarily have to be heavy handed, but doing work that inspires people to think about the current situations that are going on in our country. Um, and, and hopefully that, that becomes more and more a trend where you have more politically conscious, uh, theater and film and television, music, uh, you know, just art in general. I can't speak for, you know, photography and painting because those aren't really my strong suits, but, you know, as an, as an actor, it's, it's going to be something that I'm, I'm going to really make an effort to do is, is do politically conscious theater. So I, we have a lot of questions from the people yeah, okay. that we should get to. Yeah. Um, because you retweeted my plea for questions and they all came to you. They did not come to me. I apologize, they, 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 they all had questions for you, but we're going to actually start with at giant Raxon. Are there any Eagles trade candidates that would fit New England and vice versa? And the obvious answer here is Eric Rowe. Well, <laughs> well, I mean, the Eagles wouldn't trade for Eric Rowe. No. But I could see them. I mean, one guy who might end up moving this offseason if they can find any value for him is Nelson Aguilar. Um, and, we talk about this. And um, he, he's had a tumultuous start to his career um, just between coaching staff changes and he had a pretty serious incident off the field last summer where, I mean, it, it really, it was a, I mean, it was a big distraction at the least, a big problem at the most. Um, and, uh, and that, and he's really never had an opportunity to really build his confidence as a player and confidence is key for any NFL prospect, especially when they're a lot younger. And, and this is going to be a big off season for him and, and a change of scenery could be really good for him. 
So we'll see what happens. If there's an eagle who's going to be moved, it's it's either going to be him or Connor Barwin. I'm not sure if uh, I'm not sure if the Patriots would trade for Connor Barwin. Where did where where did they end up seeing Barwin? He was wearing some uniform. He was wearing he was wearing a Falcons Falcons shirt because Brooks Reed is a really close friend of his. Oh, that makes sense. From back of their time in Houston, and he was coming out to support Brooks Reed, who plays for the Falcons now. So it's a non-story. Yeah, that's yeah. What you're saying it was funny to see that, but you know. Somebody to get mad about for about five minutes for Eagles fans. Hmm. Um, yeah, you, you had a couple of musical questions. So yeah. let, let's just talk about this is from at Josh JSH JSH World High, John Hancock. Top five musicals. This is hard. This is hard. Okay, I'm, I'm going to do this. Top my my personal top five musicals would be um, Sweeney Todd as number one. Um, number two would be Chicago. Number three would be Pippin. Number four would be Cabaret. And number five would be Hamilton. I think that, you know, different kinds of shows, (laughs) different messages, but all very musically impressive. I think Chicago is probably the most, like, Broadway of those five musicals, where it's really about, like, the pageantry and, you know, the flashing lights and the dancing. And, I mean, I... I mean, Chicago has, has some important messages in it, but that's, like, probably the most, like, classic. When people think about Broadway, they probably think about, you know, Chicago or Wicked or something like that. Um, but if if you haven't listened to Sweeney Todd before, I suggest it has probably some of the most amazing music you'll ever hear. And the message is really powerful with it, and it's also just a really cool... It's a really badass musical. I think that, you know, musicals and musicals and musical theater don't, don't really get the reputation of being badass. But we're talking, like... Quentin Tarantino style revenge story as a musical, and the music is absolutely astounding. Um, Pippin is another, like kind of a fantasy tale for anyone who doesn't know it. The music's amazing. Um, Has the strangest ending of like any musical. Yeah, it's, it's weird. It is weird, but I it's, do like Pippin. Though. It's it's really meta too because it's a, it's like a show within a show, or it's like this idea of this constructed story. It's it's weird. It's but. Those those five shows, you know, oh, Cabaret is also important because that's a really politically important show because it's really about what happens when people kind of focus way too much on their personal life and pers- and like and deliberately insulate themselves from a political situation. The the show t- turn, takes place during Nazi during Nazi occupation um, or it takes place in Berlin during World War Two, uh, and it's about really what happens when people are so averse to politics and you know we always talk about like stick to sports and you need to stay in your lane and this is what happens when a bunch of people stay in their lane and don't pay attention to what is happening in their country politically um that's a really important show so i mean a lot of the shows that i like are kind of colored by my political views obviously and my my want for there to be a a heavy-handed political message and i know that isn't for everyone in, in theater um but i really adore those five shows I think that my list is going to be completely different from yours. Um, well, because I haven't seen Hamilton yet. I am seeing Hamilton on April 6th, which okay. I'm very excited Good. about. I've heard every song, but I can't read it until I see it, so right. that'll be fun. Um, Book of Mormon's my number one show. That's fair. Book so, of Mormon's so, the funniest great. thing I think I've ever seen in my life. I, I, the entire second act of Book of Mormon, I didn't stop laughing I the was, entire time. That show was so funny for me. So I went with my mom and my, my older brother. Um, and I think I was a freshman in high school when I went, maybe it was a sophomore in high school. 
Um, but though, I mean, the, I mean, these, this is, you know, these are the South Park guys. So the humor is obviously very, 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 very risque or very, I mean, it's, and a lot of the jokes that they're making, like I was, I was dying during that show. I was like screaming, laughing during that show. And my mom was sitting right next to me. God bless her. She was sitting right next to me and she was like, she was like crying, laughing into her hands. Cause she was embarrassed about how funny she found it. Cause all the humor is so I mean, talk about gallows humor for a second. Like, that is some really, like, dark, like jokes you wouldn't really say in public. But, oh, my God. It was – and the music is amazing, too. Oh, yeah. And, like, I mean, it's just, like, a really – it's a really good show. I mean, just, like, technically it's a very good show, but it's also so funny. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's an outstanding show. Number two, and I can't believe that you forgot about Les Mis, but it's Les Mis. So, here's oh, the thing. No, 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 you don't I, have no, a Les Mis no, take. No, no, I have a Les Mis take because I love Les Mis because I was in Les Mis, and it's still, the I think, in the top two musicals I've been in, and that's why I love it so much. But I saw it on Broadway. I didn't love it on Broadway. And I saw the movie, and I didn't love the movie. So maybe, maybe it's... You might like, have seen a bad cast... I, I, I think I mean the cast I saw. I mean the cast I saw was talented. I just didn't like how it was put on. The thing about Les Mis is it's like it's so epic and it's so like musical theatery. So to be in it as an actor is like such an experience because you feel like you're really a part of the musical theater canon. Um, but then like seeing it, I think, I think the issue was I was in it first. So I got to experience the magic of kind of being in the show. So once I kind of, once I saw it, it was almost it, like, it didn't meet that, that original feeling I had. Um, so that, that's probably my issue with Les Mis, but it's not enough. It's a good show. Obviously it's a good show, but it's not enough to crack the top five for me. Number three is Wicked. And we've actually, you've changed your mind on Wicked over the years. I came around on Wicked. Wicked is so good. Um, the music is so good. Uh, it's it's really really good music. Also, there's a song that two of my friends have said is like a top three hookup song for them. Is it which one is it? Um, as long as you're mine. Okay. Uh, okay. I was so apparently, if you if you Next are, are if if you are feeling uh <laughs> tr- tr- trying to make moves on someone and they are fans of Broadway, that is a very very good song to utilize. I honestly, think I have heard from multiple. Multiple people. So I, best listened, advice from Ethan. I've listened. I've listened to For Good probably once a day for the past like three weeks now. Like it, it's like I'm on like a streak of listening to Wicked. So yeah, that's that's another and that's another like classic. Like like when you ask anyone, like anyone on the street, be like name three or four Broadway shows. Like that is bound to be one of them. Yeah, number four for me is is also one that was better in my opinion in the movie than the show I saw because the cast wasn't amazing. But Rent is just uh, that's another uh, show I come around on. Rent's just really good, like it, and it's dark and it's funny walking around Alphabet City now because it is not like Alphabet City when Rent no. came out. I will tell you that much. No, the the, the whole village has changed since. <laughs> it's very very different. Yeah, uh, but. I mean, I had relatives who died of HIV, died of AIDS, and so, I mean, that's definitely a very emotional storyline, and just the music in the show is so good. I mean, it really did change the way that musical theater was done. I don't think we have Book of Mormon if Rent's not made, so... I don't think we have, we don't have Hamilton if Rent's We don't have Hamilton either, so uh, it, de- it definitely was great. Um, number five is very tough for me. Uh, there are two shows that I think if I had seen them, they would probably be vying for the spot. 
because I've heard all the music and the music's amazing. I just haven't seen the shows. And those shows are next to normal, which oh is literally God. about my life. Next to normal. Without, um, yeah. I mean, next to normal. It's about a family who the parents are dysfunctional and their son died. Is that a spoiler? That's not really no, a spoiler. No, because I have to no. know. Yeah, their son died, and their daughter is, like, this girl who's really, really intellectually gifted, and she's just trying to, like, find her way, but she'll never be as good as the son who died. So good. He's Not Here is one of the most chilling musical theater songs ever. Like, I, I, like, I listen to that song, and I want to break down into tears. It is absolutely incredible. And, and the other one that I've never seen, actually, is Spring Awakening. Spring Awakening. And why you doing that? You should get is, to show. Uh, maybe I will. The Spring Awakening is another great show. Um, yeah, it's another one of those like takeoffs of a European opera, and they switch it up, and they made the music really rock. Yeah, it's a it's a little odd from what I hear, but I hear it's, it's, it's really strange. good. It's kind of like it's it's kind of renty too. Like it's just similar. It's more explicit than rent, though. right? Yeah, yeah. But a lot of uh, a lot of people. In uh, the cast of one of the shows I'm in, are also doing Rent at NYU. Uh, not Rent. Oh my God, are doing Spring Awakening at NYU. So, yeah, it's it's a it's a good show and another show that has a lot of important social and political messages. Yeah. But if I had to pick number five out of the shows I've seen, it's probably Avenue Q. That's a good one. And Avenue Q is um, uh, it's just so funny. It, yeah, it, it's just that's like, another show that my, my 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 little sister and my mom saw it, and my mom once again was like. And oh, it, it's definitely right very real. It's realer now because I identify a little bit with Princeton. <laughs> a little bit. Um, you know, what do you do with a BA in English? I didn't have a BA in English, but not far off. Um, yeah, it's another really good show. I recommend for those who, like, haven't really given Broadway a chance. But what show do you think, for people who haven't really given Broadway or theater a chance, would you say is the first thing that they should do? It has to be Hamilton. I think that that's probably, right. that's probably the best segue into into musical theater because it's so intertwined with pop music. And history. And history. And it's like, I mean, you saw, it was kind of cool. Um, I think it was it was during the Grammys last year to because Hamilton performed during the Grammys last year. And that was really the first time that that kind of musical theater had been blasted out to uh, such a large audience in a really long time. And like just scrolling through Twitter and seeing people's reactions to, to the to the Hamilton medley, it was like people were like, "This is actually really cool." And it's like, "Yes, this is cool." But like, this is also musical theater, and you should get into musical theater because it's it's great and it's powerful, and the music is is amazing, and you can get all different kinds of music. But I will say that it's like it is hard to reach for some people. Um, one because theater in general is just kind of inaccessible, just because especially it's, it's, Hamilton, it's expensive. Um, but, but you can also, watch Hamilton on TV now, right? Like there are videos. You can I, watch the whole play if you want. Yeah, but also just like the music and the style is kind of hard to reach for some people who are more more into like just current pop music. But I think with Hamilton, you're going to see more shows that try to embrace different kinds of music outside of just like contemporary musical theater type of music or like classical type of music or just like somewhat poppy. You're going to get more like rock musicals, more rap musicals and, and things like that. Um, so I think like the way that Rent opened the door for a new wave of contemporary musical theater, I think you're going to see Hamilton do something similar over the next couple of years. Uh, yeah. I mean, one show that was a little bit underrated and I actually didn't see this, but I listened to it. There was a Tupac musical called Holler If You Hear Me. 
that ran for a couple of years, and no one saw it, so it closed. Okay. But it was really good. And it literally just used Tupac's music and made it into a musical. That's awesome. And uh, it was, it was, a music was fine. It was Tupac, and no one listened to it. And if it had come out after Hamilton, maybe things would have been different. But anyway, before we go, any random draft takes? I mean, we are draft people. We this are. A, I guess we're technically we're draft Technically, people. they're supposed to talk about it. So, uh, um, any random takes that you want to fire off? I have a couple. Uh, I'll just fire off. I feel like because of the Eagles drafted Carson Wentz last year, I don't get to actually talk about quarterbacks that much. So, really quickly, I'll fire off some quarterback takes. Um, Deshaun Watson's quarter is the best quarterback in this draft. Patrick Mahomes is the second best quarterback in this draft. Deshaun Kaiser is the third best quarterback in this draft. But I would, if somebody sat me down with an opinion on either either one of those three being the top guy, they could probably convince me. Is each one of them has like a very special trait? I think that Watson, you're looking at his intelligence and his poise, um, and just his ability to kind of run a system to peak efficiency. Mahomes is like he's just an incredibly gifted athlete, amazing arm, um, and just the fact that he basically constructed the entire. Uh, Texas Tech offense out of his like his ability to, to extend plays, and then with Kaiser, it's like every time I watch him, I just think about Donovan McNabb. That's that's the comp. Yeah, that's who like, he is. He's like great size, big arm, very good athlete. You know, maybe he's inconsistent with decision making and, and accuracy a little bit, but just like his, I think his peaks are better than the other two. Um, as a quarterback, and and like those moments are like that's like that's a first that's a first overall type of guy. Um, so those are the top three guys in the class. I do think that Mitch Mitch Trubisky is a good prospect, but this this elevation he's got over the course of the the process has been a little bit ridiculous, especially for a one year starter who did worse than the guy he replaced, who didn't go, who didn't even get drafted. Um, so like. If you're talking about Mitch Trubisky as like a second or third round pick, I'd be like, oh, that's a good prospect. You know, that's a that's a guy, that's the type of value you'd want for that guy. But the fact that he's getting talked about as like, you know, first overall, second overall, third overall type of pick, like that's like that's a little bit too much. And th- and that's what a lot of draft coverage is about. Where it's it ends up being a game of overcorrection between media guys where you know, that's another great, great example. Is like I feel like the, the coverage of Leonard Fournette is a lot like this, where you have a good prospect, not a great prospect, but a very good prospect. And when somebody comes out and says, you know, this guy's the best prospect of all time, or this guy's the best running back prospect of all time, then there's going to be backlash to that, saying, well, no, no, there's no, he's not. You know, he's he's got this, this, and this issue. And while that media debacle is going on, people in the middle will either say that the guy saying he's the best guy of all time is being ridiculous, or the people critiquing the quote-unquote best guy of all time are being ridiculous or being haters or whatever. So it makes it makes that, that type of stuff makes draft coverage really ridiculous. I think all these takes have nuance to them. All these players have nuance to them. Um, so to kind of go overboard and just slap a label on a guy that this guy is better than Adrian Peterson or this guy's you know, the next Adrian Peterson... Um, it's ridiculous, and people do the same thing with quarterbacks all the time. Um, so, and it, so hype trains can't create counter hype trains. So let's stop with that nonsense. Let's give guys fair evaluations. I have Kaiser's my QB one. I think Trubisky is better than you think he is. But the most important question I asked this of fellow Eagles fan Sen Sogo when he was on a few weeks ago. 
How many quarterbacks in this class would you take over Carson Wentz? Am I legally obligated to answer that question? <laughs> I mean, I would take I would take I would take the top three quarterbacks in this class over Wentz. Um, you know, if Wentz was in this class, he'd probably be quarterback four or five for me. Um, yeah, I think that I really do think that between age and experience, productivity and tools, I think that you know Watson and Mahomes especially uh, are just miles ahead of what Wentz was as a prospect. Um, and you know, you could say stuff about Wentz off the field, and you know, Wentz Wentz obviously had this like legendary work ethic and character that made all these teams fall in love with him, but. I I I sense, did, I sense, how many fumbles and interceptions did he have this year? Like he, had, he had twenty eight combined fumbles and interceptions Jesus, this that's year. That's really bad. Yeah, um, yeah, um, but but I think that Mahomes, you know, Mahomes is a younger prospect. Deshaun Watson's a younger prospect. Deshaun Kaiser's a younger prospect, and just like the fact that they've already had so much experience to this point. Um, despite being younger prospects than what Wentz was, you know, Wentz had twenty three or 24 starts, career starts. Um, yeah, I think all three of those guys are better prospects than, than once was. And it's, it's, I'll just leave it at, it's fascinating to see how, how comfortable everyone was anointing once was. And so uncomfortable with anointing any of these three guys as being a top prospect when they, all three of them are so clearly talented. Well, Ian Rappaport said that, uh, Mahomes is top quarterback on some boards. It's going to be interesting to see how his stock rises because Mahomes is so talented. Like, he improvises better than any quarterback in this draft for sure, but I'm scared of his footwork. It's just not good. Well, I think the thing with Mahomes is what people people kind of see, watch his improvisation and be like, oh, well, he's just kind of doing that for the sake of doing that, and he's kind of like Johnny Manziel in that regard, and, like, that's something we should be afraid of as, as you know, talent evaluators, when you watch the Texas Tech team, he was the only talented player on that offense this year. And it wasn't that he was kind of working in a system where he had, you know, a Jake Matthews or a Luke Jokel or Mike Evans uh, on that offense. Like, he was the system. And he was moving around in order to buy time for his receivers. He was he was getting guys open. He wasn't working. He wasn't the product of some, you know, Cliff Kingsbury Mad, you know, magic. It was, it was. Mahomes was the show, um, and I think that's the thing that people don't really realize. Yeah, his upside through the roof. I think Kaiser is my favorite. I actually think Trubisky might be QB two. Um, I think he's better than Wentz, to be honest, because Trubisky also. I love the way when he breaks the pocket, he keeps his eyes downfield. He's sort of a more conservative version of Mahomes with slightly better mechanics. So I actually like Trubisky. I wouldn't take him over Kaiser. But I could see taking over Watson or Mahomes for sure. I think that they're all pretty much in the same area of the draft for me. Um, I do have a couple of other takes, though. And one is at the cornerback position. It's about Marshawn Lattimore from Ohio State. Have you watched him at all? Yes. I'm not totally getting it. He interferes so much. Like, he's very handsy. He has issues locating the ball. Whenever he faced a better receiver this year, there were at least three uncalled penalties in every single game. And, like, I see Jalen Tabor at Florida. I see Sidney Jones at Washington. These guys are better. They're just they're just as athletic. They have just as fluid hips. And they don't interfere with players. So what am I missing on Lattimore? Well, I actually I noticed something similar in my report on Lattimore kind of talked about um, 
how he does get a little bit handsy and his ball skills aren't great. But I think the infatuation with Lattimore is understandable because he is such an effortless athlete. Mm-hmm. And just his ability, I mean, like, that speed is seamless. And it's so obvious that teams fall in love with that. And you see, like, Daniel Jeremiah just mocked him to- uh, second overall. I thought he was third. I thought no, he, he went second. went to San Francisco in his oh, last Oh, wow. Mile. Yeah. Like, that's... Which means... and, and He's Jeremiah, still around one guy for me. That's just so high. Yeah, and Jeremiah... <laughs> Jeremiah, um, Jeremiah is a connected guy, so he's not ranking those guys high unless he thinks guys in the league are ranking them that high. Um, and, I mean, you know, Lattimore is like 6'1". He's probably going to end up running 4'3", or something like that. And it's... I get it. You know, I compared him to Dominique Rogers cromartie where he's just like this like, supreme athlete at the cornerback position. Not a great tackler. You know, has some technical issues, but because of his athleticism, um, his agility, and and, um, just, like, because of those and his size, he's going to be able to be really, at the very least, a solid cornerback in the league. And his upside, I mean, he's 20 years old. So I get it. I get why people like him. I do like, you know, I I like Tease Tabor more. I like Sidney Jones more. Um, I might even like Cordray Tankersley a little bit more. Um... But I understand why people like Lattimore yeah, just because my, of the athleticism. My issue with Tinkersley is he's old. He, he also doesn't tackle very well. Mm, yeah, that's true. He's a little tentative, and that's a little bit concerning to me. But definitely a good prospect as well. This quarterback class is sensational. It's it's, it's a sensational quarterback class. Like you can't really go wrong. All these guys any other year would be quarterback one. Yeah, like Lat- Lattimore is still very good. I'm just scared about. Some of the handsiness. Yeah. Like, if I had to pick which one was most likely to bust out of that group, I would pick Lattimore. That's why I'm a little bit more scared of him. Moving to the running back position, Kareem Hunt from Toledo. There's a rumor now that he's going to run, like, a 4.38 at 210 pounds, and he played at, like, 230 last year. If you watch his – I don't know how much you've watched with Kareem Hunt, but I have never seen a running back break more tackles than Kareem Hunt. Ever in the NFL, in any college prospect, guys just bounce off him, and he did it in the Senior Bowl too at a lesser weight. I'm very tempted to say if he's in the late first, I mean, maybe he's older, and I hear he might have an off field problem, but I mean, Kareem Hunt's someone who I think should be a riser. I'm really excited to see what happens with him. Yeah, I think that in this, this class is really stacked at the running back position too, so it's going to be harder for those, like, for a Mac guy to get the same hype as, you know, Dalvin Cook or, or Leonard Fournette. But he is, I mean, it's hard to kind of deny, like, you know, size plus production plus, you know, everything like mm-hmm. that. And, like, he, he's a very good player. And I just I just started actually, you know, I, I, watched him, I watched him during the year, and I really liked him during the year, and I just started writing my report on him today, actually. And he, he's a good player. And, and the other thing is he's a really good receiver, too. Yes. And that's, that's an important – it's an important thing for running backs to be able to do in the NFL now. Um, and that's another reason why I'm, like, so confused about this whole, like, Leonard Fournette thing. Because, like, that dude did not – I mean, he could possibly do it. Uh, he just doesn't have experience catching the football very much. And I think the polished receivers at the running back position are going to be so, so valuable um, over the next couple of years. Because I think the league is going back to emphasizing using running backs more and more. Uh, but also in the passing game. Which is why a couple of days ago when they were talking about, you know, Christian McCafferty might go eighth overall to the yeah, Panthers. Yeah, I want to talk about that. And, like, I thought that was interesting. And, like, people were kind of knocking that, being like, that's ridiculous. It's like, okay, Christian McCafferty at eight is – that's a reach, but he's going to be a productive NFL player. I mean, you don't you don't stumble into 2,000 yards from scrimmage 
two years in a row by accident. Like that's not like he is, he was the best receiver on his team. He was the best rusher on his team. He could, he runs routes better than most receivers I've seen. Um, yeah, he's not a great athlete. He's a little bit smaller for a running back, but like I watch him and I'm like, that's Brian Westbrook. And if a team, I mean, I think every 32 teams in the NFL would take Brian Westbrook on their team. Yeah. Um, so like, yeah, like eighth overall, that's rich, but is it, if Christian McCaffrey goes to Carolina, is he not the second best offensive skill player on that team behind Greg Olson? Uh, I mean, it's close. Like, it's close. Like, like um, almost immediately. I mean, he's he's already a better receiver than Calvin Benjamin. That might be a hot take, but like, like, like that's the thing with him. And and this running back class is crazy. And honestly, it wouldn't really surprise me to see any of these guys go anywhere. Just because it's kind of hard to predict at this point what the NFL, how the NFL feels about running backs, um, because we're seeing after Ezekiel Elliott's success in Dallas, a lot more media guys are, are comfortable with saying, "Oh, Dalvin Cook and Leonard Fournette and you know Joe Mixon are going to go in the first round or something like that." Um, so we don't really know how the league feels about this thing because this is a copycat league. So teams might want to draft Dalvin Cook in the top ten or Leonard Fournette in the top ten and just like. Give them the ball 300 times next year and see what happens. Um, and we'll see. <laughs> I I don't have a first-round grade on Christian McCaffrey. I think that there are other players in this class who do what he does better. Curtis Samuel. Curtis, Well, Curtis Samuel I have a first-round grade on. He's Curtis Samuel is fantastic, too. He's also a running back who can play wide receiver. He's not a pure wide receiver, so stop saying that. Yeah. I want him at, As a running back, I want him in mismatches on linebackers and safeties. Like, that's yeah. all I want out of life. Um McCaff- my issue with McCaffrey is he gets tackled really easily. He doesn't break a lot of tackles. Yeah, I mean, he's, and not, he's not a super athlete. He's He is Reggie Bush after he was past his prime. He's like Reggie Bush when he was like 27, in, in Detroit, 28. Detroit, yeah, Reggie who Bush. was still a good player, but he's yeah. not Reggie Bush. Yeah, and I don't, I don't have I, – I wouldn't say that he's like a first-round caliber player, yeah. but I think he's going to be a very productive football player. I All think right. he's going to – yeah. I want to end it on edge players. Um – have you – how many edge players have you watched so far, just to start? Um, I've watched – I've watched a lot. I've written about three or – I've written about four. So there's some interesting stuff right now. I see a lot of very similar edge players after the top two. I think that Miles Garrett and Tim Williams are a tier above uh, the rest of the edge players in this class. Um, I don't know. Like, which ones do you think jump out the most in terms of – having pro potential because I mean I've been watching like Solomon Thomas who I think is the most explosive in the class Tackers McKinley I think is the most prototypical like he 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 can pretty much do anything he wants when he actually sets his mind to it in the class Tuckle Charlton has great length and he has a move Derek Barnett has great length and he has a move and he's really smart um Deshaun Hall reminds me of Danielle Hunter from the Vikings I think that if you put on a little bit of weight and be patient with him he's gonna be a really good player um, I don't love the Young Sound State guy, but other you're, people like the Young Sound State you're guy. You're forgetting a very important player. That's Carl Lawson, and Carl Lawson's very good too. Carl Lawson is, and that's that's. I mean, that's going to be my guy this year, and a guy that I really think the Eagles should target in the first round. If, you know, just to kind of 
beyond team specific stuff because he really reminds me of Brandon Graham because he's a little bit he's a little bit shorter but he's you and Justice both said that yeah he's shorter he's stout he's such a smart pass rusher I mean I don't think anyone else in this class puts together moves the way he does when he rushes the passer yeah he's a solid run defender not a great run defender but a solid run defender but if you're just drafting guys to get after the passer he he's going to step in on day one and you know, be productive. Now, I really I love Solomon Thomas because I think he's an, a ridiculous athlete. Similar with uh, Tack McKinley, just like two of those two guys are just otherworldly athletes. Um, but in terms of a guy who can come in day one and help your football team, I think behind uh, behind Miles Garrett and Tim Williams, Carl Lawson's that next yeah. guy. The hardest player for me to read is Solomon Thomas because Solomon Thomas at times looks absolutely dominant, but he has one move, and if he ends up Getting double teamed, he's done. Yeah, the thing with Thomas is that he has no idea how to use his upper body. Yeah, like he, like he is so explosive. If he gets that little swim where he just like dodges yeah. to the side and then shoots yeah, a he, gap. He's there. He just explodes. He, he just like throws himself into offensive linemen, and it works a lot because he's so so athletically superior to them. Um, but if he gets stopped initially, he just gives up on the play, and it's like, like I, I think um, the Arizona game is a good example of that. Not he a, just stands there. Not a style comp, but it's a little like Bud Dupree with Pittsburgh. Yeah, I mean, where he's going to need time. Yeah, it's it's gonna it's gonna take some time with him, and, and I. But I, the thing is, like, he's also very young, and like with good coaching, he could be a star. Yeah. And, and like the, that's a guy who could be. You know, he could be J.J. Watt if he wanted to be, but, we'll, I mean, I think he's going to he's gonna explode at the combine. Speaking of J.J. Watt, Derek Watt, I, I rewatched him. I don't think he's that bad. I, the, I, the issue with Derek Watt is that he's not a pass rusher. So just don't expect him to be a pass rusher. He's a really, really good run-stopping strong side linebacker. Yeah, and that's, and that's totally fine. Some top 40 hype for him, too. I wouldn't – I'm not sure i take him that high, but he's going to be a good NFL player. And I think Vince Beagle – I think the Patriots are going to be all over Vince Beagle. Because he's versatile. Versatile. He can cover. He can rush. He's going to test really well. Um, well, maybe maybe Derek's going to get some of his brother's HGH before the combine starts. And we'll yeah. see what he We'll does. see. I, we'll see. Um, one other Derek, Derek Rivers. I've not watched it. Uh, the Youngstown yeah, State I guy. Have, I, I need to be sold on him a little bit more because he seems like the most passive pass rusher in this class. He doesn't seem like he's trying. At least not in tape. So... I think he's probably someone who is better in one-on-ones than necessarily during the game. So we'll see about that. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I, I know you hate Pittsburgh, but they have a good player in Ewan Price. Oh. That guy is good. I like I like the University of Pittsburgh. Just <laughs> you just don't like the city. I just don't like the city. <laughs> Difference. Um, no, Ewan Price, he's small, but well, that guy knows how to get to the quarterback, period. He just has burst. He has explosiveness. Looks like bodybuilder too. He's yeah, huge. he's like he's, six foot and like, but two hundred and sixty pounds. He's ripped. A team is going to figure out how to use him, and it's going to be game over. Yeah, I don't know who, but he's going to end up. The Steelers could use a guy like Ewan Price. That would be fun. Stay in Pittsburgh. I think that would be a lot of fun. I have a lot of other random takes. I can fire like three off super quick. One is that Carlos Watkins from Clemson is. To me, the second best defensive tackle in this class, which I think is a little bit different than what a lot of people are saying, but I love the way he dictates the line of scrimmage. He's so solid at the line of scrimmage. He reminds me of Malcolm Brown on the Patriots, and he also has some explosiveness. He can collapse a pocket. I I think after seeing Caleb Brantley, I was slightly underwhelmed. Some of the other guys in this class were also slightly underwhelmed. After Jonathan Allen, I think that Watkins is very good. Item number two, and we'll see how he tests the combine. That is my contingency. But if he tests the way I think he's going to test, 
I think that Ruben Foster is the number one player in this class because I don't think that you're going to find a more special linebacker than Ruben Foster. And I, I mean, he just, he has range, he has power, he has speed, he has intelligence, he is crazy athletic. Miles um, Garrett is fantastic too. Miles Garrett is slightly overrated as a pass rusher. He's still very good, but he's slightly overrated. And I think Ruben Foster is a more complete player. So depending on how Ruben Foster tests, which is a major caveat, he's my number one linebacker right now in this class. Item number three, and I know that we disagree on this. Um, well, actually, I'm not going to go with my Mike Williams take because that's kind of boring. I'm going to go with a different wide receiver take. Isaiah Jones from ECU is fantastic. Zay Jones? Zay Jones. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, for a little guy, he knows how to use his body really, really well. He's Jarvis Landry. He has great hands. He's better than Jarvis Landry, man. Oh, okay. He, if he <laughs> runs the way I think he's going to run... Um, he has a little Antonio Brown in him. I wouldn't call him Antonio Brown, but he just knows how to position his body so that he catches long passes against bigger cornerbacks. I don't know if anyone's watched his Virginia Tech game. He goes against Brandon Faison, who's probably going to be a draftable player next year, and he beat him on verticals all game long, and Faison couldn't really do anything to stop him. So I I really think that Zay Jones is someone who I don't know if he's a first round pick. He's on that cusp for me right now, but a team if they take him day two, I think that would be a steal. He he's a little small, which I know we don't love small receivers, but he has a lot of other good things going for him. So that's that's those are my three other takes. We've got a lot of drafting in the final twenty minutes since this podcast went over by twenty minutes. Um yeah, do you have any final words? Thanks for coming on again. This was no, great. I, this was great. I think that we think we covered the entire world yes, in, the past, I, in the past 80 minutes. I'm pretty sure that this podcast talked about both like protests and the NFL draft. We talked we 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 got from protest <laughs> all the way to EC, ECU wide receivers. Yeah, this so is the kind of stuff we want to do. There's a pretty good chance that there will not be a podcast next week. I'll probably be back for the combine the week after. I have some guests lined up coming up soon. I'm still trying to figure out, you know, how we can make this podcast even better in 2017. If you have any thoughts, feel free to shoot me a tweet at Ethan Ham. Until next time, though, this has been the Football More podcast with Ethan Hammerman, and I'll talk to you later.